The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Hmm. Nothing. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 578 with guests Matt Jubilier and Brad Becker, recorded live Tuesday, July 13, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, ENRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And now, the man who's having more fun than Lindsay Lohan's parole officer, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back. It's Carl. It's Richard. It's .NET. It's .NET Rocks. Hey, man. How are you, sir? Um, well, summer's uh, heating up down here in Connecticut. Oh, yes. I'm almost made too many ribs. Yeah, I love summer. It's just <laughs> wonderful. Hey, we got uh, something interesting for Better Know Framework today, so let's just roll the crazy music and get on with it. Excellent. All right, what you got? So... I did a little uh, spelunking in the documentation for the uh, WPF documentation, and I found a really cool page that sort of describes the role of trees or the concept of trees in WPF, you know, like a, a tree view or a tree or an object graph, that kind of thing. Okay. So if you go to shrinkster.com slash 1EK2, 1EKK, what's K? Kilo. Kilo. Yeah, that's that's a word we don't use down here in America. So, uh, <laughs> except when we're talking about drugs, and I don't do that. So, uh, one echo kilo two. Uh, that'll bring you to a page called Trees in WPF, and it has some really good text describing the concept of trees, and even sometimes how the metaphor of a tree, like an object tree, is important. But it does break down um, at runtime sometimes when uh, relationships between the objects break down. But it is still a, a really good uh, metaphor. And then they talk about the logical tree mm -hmm. 
and the visual tree, the logical tree, uh, essentially being able to, you know, if you're if you've ever done any work with XML, l walking through the DOM, that kind of thing. Well, it turns out there are some helper classes uh, for working with logical trees. Well, there is one. It's a logical tree helper system. Windows. Logical tree helper, and its members include bring into view, find logical node, get children, uh, get parent, that kind of thing. Right. And then there's also the visual tree. And the visual tree is anything that contains objects that are based on system.windows.media.visual, which is sort of the base class for rendering support, hit testing, coordinate transformation, bounding box calculations, and that kind of thing. So there is also a visual tree helper class, uh, and you know, for working with visual trees. So anyway, if you just go back to that Shrinkster uh, link, shrinkster.com slash one echo kilo two, that'll take you right to the page that describes all the relationships of these metaphors, the trees. So that's it, the trees. We're swinging from the trees today, Richard. Who's yakking at us? <laughs> You'll like this one. Actually, the subject is a little disturbing because it says, the subject is paranoid listener. Richard, Carl, okay, now I'm getting paranoid. I've written a few emails to .NET Rocks and Run As Radio over the last six months, and I never hear from you guys. I thought we were friends. Oh, wait, I'm just a listener. You don't really know me, do you? <laughs> all right, all right, I'll try again. Seriously, though, I have listened to show 539 with Charlie Kindle and 542 with Daniel Egan, and something occurs to me. Those are both Windows Phone 7 shows. Right. While I am excited to see Microsoft is trying to get themselves back in the smartphone game, because, frankly, where they are today with WinMobile is a true, dead-end, outdated technology, I am not hearing what I feel is a balanced portrayal of what they are coming out with. Hmm. I think Windows Phone 7 is a huge leap in the right direction, and Microsoft may really be jumping ahead of the market in terms of UI concepts, but I really think they are shooting themselves in the foot in two very significant ways that you guys are all dancing around. I think in your interviews, you need to dig a little deeper and offer up some criticism. Specifically, one, Silverlight is an excellent choice in a development platform for Windows Phone 7, but not offering any access to native code is, in my opinion, a huge roadblock for certain types of applications. Right. Anyone with a significant investment in native code algorithms that either don't easily port to managed code or that would take too much time are pushed aside with this release. Bad move. I assume this will also come with time, but out of the gate, this is a huge limiting factor when trying to compete with the likes of Android and iOS 4. Two, the lack of true multitasking is a step backward, I believe. Microsoft may think their solution is a winner. I don't. Even Apple has succumbed to the reality that people expect more out of their phones now. Android is way ahead of the curve here. A couple of really simple examples. On my Droid, I use a stopwatch app quite regularly. Without true multitasking, I couldn't do anything else with the phone at the same time. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I have a workout app I use that tracks my movements and timing via GPS. It also would render my phone otherwise useless during this time. Hmm. These are two simple... These are two super simple examples of what you can't do in Windows Phone 7. Undoubtedly, there are thousands more. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I want to see Microsoft succeed with Phone 7. That horribly closed iOS environment needs more competition than just Android. And as a developer, I want to leverage my .NET skills on a mobile platform. I'd just like to see a little more balance in your interviews. Anyway, awesome shows. Keep it up. 
Oh, and hey, let me give a quick plug for Run As Radio, hmm. another of your great shows. As a developer, I'm very curious to hear about the other side of technology, the IT side. I listen every week, and I think it's worth the time of every developer to get the IT perspective. Richard Rocks. Great show. Uh, that's Brett Robichaud from Portland, Oregon. And Brett, we're going to send you down a mug. I don't know if I want to tackle this email per se, because I think both of these issues are, are not that big a deal per se, right? I mean, there is XNA available in Windows Phone 7, which granted is still C-sharp, but it's closer to the metal. And if it's good enough for electronic arts, it should be good enough just about anybody. Well, I think his main gripe is the lack of multitasking. And I, there is multitasking, yeah. but it's just selective. And Microsoft has decided that, you know... Th- media that you're listening to should run in the background so it's obviously possible they're just trying to prevent the you know the inevitable shooting oneself in the foot syndrome well the problems that android is having right now where phones are ripping through battery right. and run and and people are hating them because they don't even realize they got half a dozen apps running in the background. right it all comes down to the user not realizing what's really running right which therein lies the next problem which is as developers we don't get confused by this stuff for the most part so maybe you know maybe the idea is to make some sort of interface where things that run in the background you know, do sort of show up. You know, I when I use my iPhone and I'm on a phone call, for example, and then I switch to another application, a little green bar goes across the top, says click here to return to the phone call. You know, right. something like that that obviously tells the user there is something running in the background, click here to access it. Or, you know, there are ways to get around it. But I Yeah, guess- and maybe just a, a hard limit on the number of things that are running, too. True. You know, I think the big thing here is that people have their phones on for days and days and days, and you know, a program they ran four or five days ago is still back there. So it might good. make sense to be able to kill the old ones. Good email. Good food Yeah, for great thought. email. And I'll send you a mug down to Portland, Oregon, Brett, just because I like you. And if you want a mug, send us an email, rocks at franklins.net. And that brings us to our guests. Uh, today we're talking about Silverlight Pivot with Matt Jubilier and Brad Becker. Matt is a senior project manager at Microsoft Live Labs. He leads the product management team in Live Labs and is responsible for all the marketing efforts and contributing to product planning and strategy. Prior to that, Matt managed the hardware and accessory ecosystem for Zune. He contributed to the entertainment experiences within Xbox 360 and served as the director of product management for Slacker, an internet radio company in Southern California. Brad Becker is the Director of Product Management for Microsoft's rich client platforms, including Silverlight and .NET, and was previously responsible at Microsoft for product management uh, during the introduction of the Expression Tools. He was formerly a senior UX user experience consultant at Macromedia, which is now Adobe, and senior product designer for Flex Builder, Flash, Flash Professional, and the Flash Player. Prior to working at Macromedia, Brad spent 11 years as a software engineer and user interface team lead in the development of commercial client server and web apps. In his spare time, Brad created web projects for clients including Universal Music, Arista, and Mojo Records. He also found time to form a band, record six albums, perform for a half million people, and write a song for one very forgettable Warner Brothers movie. (laughs) Welcome, Matt and Brad. And we have a lot more to talk about uh, after the show than uh, you might realize. Welcome. Well, thanks. Thanks for having us. So we first had a mention of the Pivot Viewer Controller by our friend John Bristow. Yes. And I've been poking around with it for a while, and I'm glad to have you guys on to talk about this, because it's a heck of a control. 
before you even start, I think the question that might be on people's minds is, well, there was Project Gemini, and Project Gemini is the uh, the the, um, the the sort of business intelligence pivot viewer that can work inside Excel and all of these things that we talked to Donald Farmer about a while ago. Are the two products related? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of relation between the different platforms in the sense that um, both touch on data visualization and manipulating the increasingly large amounts of data that we have to deal with. Um, the Pivot Viewer technology in Silverlight comes from a Live Labs research project specifically looking at how to visualize these large quantities of data so that insights are more readily visible. Um, and the projects that, that Donald's been working on also touch on that manipulation of large data sets. So although they represent separate controls today, they certainly have a lot of potential for overlap and scenarios that make the best use of both going forward. And, but they don't share any code base. No, they're, they're separate at this point. Totally. Okay. And this is Matt, right? Yes. All right. So when we're talking about large, what do we mean? So within Pivot, um, when we say large, uh, we've, we've conceptually tested the concept of a collection, which is what Pivot can visualize, up to millions of items. But the view at any one time contains on the order of 1,000 to 5,000 items. Uh, we, we find that when you start getting to data sets bigger than a couple thousand items, it really presents a... Uh, a block for the users to be able to feel like the data is approachable and right. easy to use. Um, and we found other ways of extrapolating these sets to, to handle much larger systems. Uh, so, for instance, we did a, a sample that took all the pages of Wikipedia um, within, within the Live Labs project, a couple million different pages, and we essentially made it so that each view shows you all of the things related to a certain topic in Wikipedia. Um, and so opening an item would bring in 500 to a few thousand new items related to that, and you could navigate over a quite broad con conceptual network in that way. It really does look like you're watching a video when you see this thing in action, and I'm reminded a lot of the uh, deep zoom technology that, uh, that, that Microsoft has put together. Uh, Pivot Viewer is built on top of DeepZoom, so there's a reason for the familiarity. Mm. Uh, the, the technology that has just been updated in Silverlight 4, uh, there were some feature enhancements to DeepZoom that enable a control like Pivot Viewer to be built. Um, and we really feel like the use of DeepZoom within this context makes the experience continuous and, and actually more useful. Um, when we did some of the initial research on this, we find that even though the concept of filtering through items is something that's been around for, for quite a long time on the web, um, every time you click on a filter, you usually have to wait for a new page to come back. Right, right. And over time, we actually see that people stop clicking on links even though they're interested simply because they don't want to wait. And when you use uh, Deep Zoom in this way so that all the items are present and you're really only manipulating views... Uh, people have a higher tolerance for exploration, which leads to some really nice things when you're developing a website that has this much content. Uh, you definitely want to expose more of the back catalog and some of the, the other items you have there. I also really love the way, in the demos anyway, that the continuity exists between views. When you switch from one view to another, 
Um, typically, the, the graphs and bars and charts are made up of little icons of pictures, and that makes a lot of sense. Then when you change views, you're not just replacing one static page with another one. You actually see these items fly from one column to another or spread out from a column view to a group view or uh, you know, and it, and it really makes sense in the viewers, in the user's mind, as to the relationship between this view and the last view. Like it's one continuous story. And that really goes back to that that initial research. I mean, when we sat down and, and tried to figure out how do you make putting five thousand things on screen at once useful, the first thing you deal with is that anytime you start moving items in and out or around, uh, people get lost really fast. Right. Um, anytime those items are at thumbnail size, you're just not going to be able to understand what interactions are happening. And so using those animations and transitions as a way to help you build and maintain your context uh, was, was really important to the research. And I think the results definitely come through in the final control. So it's uh, nice to hear you see the same thing in the technology. I know what this reminds me of, and it's funny, this ties back into Gemini. Ralph Kimball's documentation, way back at the beginning of OLAP, he talked about maintaining the thread of intuition. Mm. This idea that you're you're looking for something that you don't know of, right? You're looking for exceptions in a large amount of data, and speed was of the essence, because if you as soon as you have that delay, it's not, it's not so much that people are getting bored, it's that they lose the thread of pursuit that they're on. Right. And so, you know, having all that stuff move quickly means that we actually can get ultimately, you know, find your way to that thing that you, you sort of sense is out there, that anomaly in the data. And, you know, when you're, the brain manipulates information visually, and this makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how, what else to say. I mean, that, that's, that's what I'm getting. I'm, I'm, it tickles my brain in a way that feels good. And, I, and I've, it's just like I'm thinking visually at what I'm looking at. Oh, we really appreciate that. I, uh, I think another thing that uh, you, you start to feel as you play with pivot controls more and more um, is that you know, the, the way of, of filtering down to a subset and sort of organically finding what you're looking for is a model that people are very familiar with today. Um, you know, the web fundamentally takes us from many things down to, to one thing. Uh, that's the way search is set up in a lot of other infrastructures. And uh, with Pivot, because you can use a single item as a way to sort of refilter and jump back out to a larger set, that idea of going from many to few to one, but then from one back out to many again, it actually continues the exploration process. It continues that, that browsing process, and it gives you that continuous uh, thread that you were talking about earlier, which I think is a great analogy for this type of exploration. We just don't want to put anything in the way. Right. Uh, everyone's going to be looking for a different slice, different insight within the data, and it should all be continuous within the one set. I'm, I also want to mention the, the, the demos and videos we're looking at are online at shrinkster.com slash 1EK3, 1EchoKilo3, or if you want the URL, it's microsoft.com slash silverlight slash pivotviewer. So what sorts of data, is there any particular rules around how I have to get my data into shape to put it in, into the pivot viewer control? Oh, we tried to, I'll, I'll try and stay away from the term rules. Um, it's a pretty flexible format. So when we came up with the idea of a collection, uh, we have an XML type called CXML, which is collection XML. 
And it's really just a basic XML format that contains all of the metadata. And then we use the deep zoom image format for all of the visuals. So a collection consists of a CXML file, a deep zoom collection, and a bunch of deep zoom images on a web server. And the Pivot Viewer Control knows how to interpret all that information to uh, display it in this form. So you're really working with a known set of technologies there. And what we've invested in are a variety of tools that allow you to turn any type of data into CXML so you can view it in Pivot. Um, and this is something we started in Live Labs, and we hope to continue uh, in sort of partnership with the Silverlight team on this. But we have identified that people really want to take uh, the creation of collections from a bunch of different angles. And, you know, the first thing that we ever built was a simple Excel plugin that allowed you to use the rows and columns of Excel and put in URLs to images on your hard drive, and you click Publish, and it automatically makes one of these collections for you. And that solves for the simplistic, I'd love to give it a try, I don't quite know what information I'd want in there yet. It's great for prototyping and iterating. Uh, but as you get into some more complex scenarios, you're obviously going to want to do this with more code. And so we have both a command line tool and a, and a complete library available on CodePlex that allow you to take some uh, code we built and sort of build it into your pipeline for automatically creating the deep zoom images and automatically turning a number of different data types into, uh, into CXML files. Because I got to think the challenge here, especially when we start talking about millions of points of data, is that serialization time, taking it from whatever format it's in and making it into CXML, and then hauling that to the control could be costly too. It's actually not as bad as you'd think. So um, I'll walk through the way this works, and hopefully this helps uh, visualize it for everyone. Um, when you get to those conceptual networks of millions of items, right, you're really talking about a more dynamic infrastructure where you're going to have millions of items on your server, but at any one time, the pivot viewer is going to be looking at a slice that's maybe two to 5,000 items. Okay. And so if you think about it in practical terms, say I had a store that had millions of things for sale, um, it's not like you're going to go back and rebuild each thing you have for sale every day. You're really just, over time, adding the new things that you stock. And so you can get efficient about building that into some kind of a pipeline where the time to create new items is pretty simple, and the algorithms that decide which things are related and which things should be shown in each slice are just automatic. Now, in terms of getting all that information from the server to the, to the pivot viewer on the web, because we use deep zoom, the interactions are incredibly efficient. And actually, the thing that takes longer when you load up a pivot collection is loading the metadata. Uh, the imagery, because it's served so efficiently through DeepZoom, is the quickest thing to load, even mm. when you're talking about, you know, a couple thousand items. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight Analytics Framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem, but what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight Analytics Framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. 
You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. So does it gradually build up a larger and larger set on the client as you keep spinning things around, is grabbing a few thousand items each time? Does it keep the old ones around? No, it really looks at uh, the, the idea of a collection as, as one thing in time. So um, we have two ways that we think of linking larger collections together. Um, the first we call just linked collections. So uh, to give you an example of that, imagine you're looking at one collection that has all of the teams in, the, in Major League Baseball, and right. they're each represented by you know, a logo of the team. And when you click on a team, it actually opens up a collection of all the players within that team. So you're talking about separate collections that are each loading one after the other, but you can link them together. And then I might link from a collection of players from that baseball team to maybe players on a football team within the same city. So I can link these networks together using simple URLs because each state in Pivot, each view, has a uh, longer URL associated with it. So you can get smart about linking from one item to a sub-region of another collection to give a continuous experience. Uh, my favorite example of that is actually, and we did a, a movies collection that allows us to link from movies to the actors in that movie. Right. And then from an actor back to the movies that they were in. And so you can do the cool. you know, whole seven degrees of, of Kevin Bacon, really, uh, through that type of network. Because, you know, that's then, exactly what I was oh, thinking I needed to do. <laughs> yeah. I'm who sorry, knew, you who knew that uh, the for? answer for this technology was uh, movies and actors? <clears throat> but the, uh, the second way to do it is with one of these dynamic systems that I was referring to e earlier, where you have millions of items that are part of one big collection, and what you're doing is essentially building a server that knows which sub-pieces to, to build into collections at query time. So it's not like you have millions of CXML files on a server pre-generated, the, the server is going to build the CXML file in response to the specific query, whether that's searching for a page in Wikipedia, or perhaps if you're thinking about this for a business intelligence application, you might just want to see you know, all sales opportunities in the U.S. relating to healthcare, um, and then bring back the CXML file generated on the fly referring to the actual sales opportunities that were already up there on the server. Brad, I'm sort of trying to drag you into this a little bit because I'm now thinking the, the next problem is structuring the XAML for this many elements. Like that's just a lot of elements in a, in a page. Yeah, and so um, when you think about designing the items within a collection, uh, we, we have simpler ways to do it, and there are more complex ways to do it as you get sort of higher up on the visual scale of things. Um, the simplest way that we've built to do it is we made um, part of one of the tools you can get on the Live Lab site allows you to create um, HTML templates for each item using data and using uh, different images that you link it to, and it can automatically go through and aggregate multiple images together and add, you know, a bar with the title and maybe a map or some other elements you want. And it can do that across several thousand items and export it to, uh, you know, storage pretty efficiently. Um, 
there's another way which our, some of our designers use, which is there's a tool in Photoshop that allows you to do uh, batch data sets. And for some of the more visually intricate uh, items that we've designed, um, they use that system to sort of make all of the items once and then just come to, back to it periodically and have a designer update the collection. That's cool. So how many layers deep can I go here? Can I just keep on linking? Yeah, it's, it's kind of only bounded by your creativity and your understanding of what, what the customer wants to do. Sure. Um, if, you, <laughs> if you take them to a place that's unexpected, you're going to lose the train of thought pretty quickly. But if you have one of those scenarios that can just keep linking from one thing to the next, uh, without a lot of uh, cognitive load in terms of people understanding where you're taking them to, um, you can build some pretty linked experiences uh, that are that are really nice. I was going to say, you're, this is more for just viewing business data, isn't it? I mean, you could you can use it as a navigation tool. Oh, absolutely. Um, some of the, I'll, I'll say, some of the most surprising and also some of the earliest interest that we saw in the Pivot project was from business intelligence companies that wanted to visualize everything from a sales pipeline to uh, information about customers or even, you know, HR groups wanting to review their own people. Um, I've seen everything from franchises looking across, you know, all of their different stores and performance. Um, and I'm sure this only scratches the surface. The, the universal truth is that each time someone sees the pivot viewer in action, they're going to think of 10 things that they'd want to use it for. Right. right. And so we're really just excited to see that adoption start to take hold. What are, and, and this is, this is a free tool. I'm assuming it's a live labs tool, right? It's, it's now in Silverlight. So uh, to give you a little of the project uh, history, and then I'll, I'll let Brad jump in here and sort of give you his view on the, on the product side of it. We kicked off this multi-year experiment called pivot to look at these large sets of data. We came out with a preview in November but I don't think any of us realized quite what we'd stumbled upon or how useful it would be in the short term. We kind of looked at it thinking, well, there's this big hurdle that people haven't created collections yet, and people might not want to create them as much as we think they will. And so once the market response came in and people were really interested, we uh, quickly, you know, within the course of a few weeks, sat down with the Silverlight team and talked about a real scalable way to bring that type of visualization to market. Um, and, you know, within the course of less than six months, really, we're able to fully build and productize that solution. And now that it's part of Silverlight, that's something you can bet on, right? You know, any, any lab project's going to have the issues of not having all the testing and, and compatibility and distribution options behind it and, and really the sustainability for a business to bet on but now that this is a control in Silverlight, it really opens up the door for companies to use this in a more robust way. Is it in the box in Silverlight 4? The technologies that enable it are in the box in Silverlight 4. The actual control to develop it, you download afterwards and it gets served with, with the web page. Okay, but there's no extra fees or anything like that for using it? No, it's totally free. Yeah. And what are some examples of, um, and I know you you hinted at a couple, but... Do you have any uh, success stories of websites we could go out to other than demo sites that use uh, PivotView? Well, have you seen, this is Brad, have you seen the Hard Rock site? Well, I've seen the Hard Rock uh, memorabilia site. Um, 
And so that's, you know, that's based on DeepZoom, which is the technology behind this. Right. Um, Matt, uh, which websites can we talk about right now? So uh, the, the first one we saw, which is perhaps uh, what excited me the most is just how fast this came online, is a company called Hitched out of the U.K., and they have a massive database of wedding venues and suppliers and all different things about weddings in the U.K., and within hours of the release of the final control, they had built a collection which has every single wedding venue in the country. And you can just quickly sort by, you know, I want a venue that's in this district that has, you know, accommodations for people to stay overnight and has a wedding planner and has a pool and is good for, you know, this range of guests. And it immediately filters down to these images and it's just, you know, because it's the wedding industry, there are some amazing high-resolution shots that represent each of these locations. Are we talking about HitchedSalon.com? No, it's actually Hitched, H-I-T-C-H-E-D dot C-O dot U-K. And if you go through to wedding venues, you'll see a little uh, beta for their visual search, which is, which is using the pivot control. And it's one okay. of the links I, uh, I sent over. Okay, well... And hopefully um, can be part of the package that people can view. Yeah, we'll put it online. Yeah, so that, that was an exciting one. Um, you know, it's great to see the first time you use it, you'll smile and you'll say, well, I wish other things worked like this. And, and the real thing that I focus on is when you go back to the old way we navigated just you know, a week before this came out, it seems really frustrating. And so this is a great example of how people with large content libraries like... Um, you know, anyone with massive amounts of photos or anyone who has these large banks of content where today they're literally doing thousands of pages and just linking one to the other. Um, this really changes the game for how you think about your, your catalog. Oh, man, I'm, I'm using this now. It's amazing. Well, you know, the big one to check is the helipad option for your wedding venue. <laughs> I didn't see that, Richard. <laughs> That's a yeah, pretty good in, filter right just there. Just in case you really want to get married in style. There you Everybody go. Yeah, I need a helipad option. Do they have the any with a helipad and a castle? Hever Castle, Kent. Well, only if the castle's on a private island. <laughs> that is really, really cool. Now, but this is not so much, I mean, the, the real, there's, there's a drilling effect and a filtering effect here, being able to assign multiple fillers, but you're not combining a lot of data, right? I mean, can you get, really get into that? I keep thinking of the old style pivots where it's, you know, products over sales by time, that kind of thing. And before you answer that, that I uh, shrinksterized that link. It's shrinkster.com slash 1EK7 if you want to go to that search tool, the hitched. So, guys, what about this whole concept of, of multiple-dimensional uh, exploration of data where I want to relate multiple collections together? We, we, we look at it a lot. Um, we have some novel solutions uh, that anybody can use today to start to tease out some of those insights. Um, and then we sort of have the longer term to keep thinking about this. And so the way to do it today is with smart design. And what I mean by that is when you design a, an item in a collection, you can actually use the fact that when you're totally zoomed away from it, you can use large dominant colors on the card themselves to 
isolate another trend. So to give you an example of that, and I, I apologize, I, I don't have the link for this, but um, because it was one of those internal business intelligence applications, but I saw a collection that had all these sales opportunities, and for each one, it would say, you know, green if it was a win and they, they closed the deal. It would be a red if they, if they lost the deal to another company, and a yellow would mean they just disengaged. And when you look at a graph that shows um, wins and losses by region, what you can immediately see is that in certain countries, you, you have like every opportunity they're just walking away from, whereas in other com- countries, you might have a high rate of wins or losses. And so just by using color as part of the design of an item, you can show these secondary features um, that allow you to make more use of the graph view. Right. Now, I think the longer-term solution is new views. And, you know, I would definitely consider us at step one of many down this path of making rich visualizations that let us do things with more data than we thought we could before. And so the biggest challenge with any new view is that it has to be universally useful. Right. And when, when you get into the breadth of scenarios we're talking about here, each of the views we've prototyped internally has a weakness here or there. When you load it with a certain type of data, it just doesn't quite make sense. And so we're considering everything from how do you let other people design views to what views might be universally applicable to what if we had a library and we let you turn on or off um, certain types of visualizations. And so I think all of that is, is sort of left for our future roadmap. And, you know, we're going to keep at this and, and keep iterating on this control to hopefully make it more useful for more scenarios. Tell us about the World Cup pivot at 1EK8, shrinkster.com 1EK8. Yeah, that was a pretty cool one. Um, that is from a digital marketing agency who was just experimenting with the technology to see what it could do. And obviously the World Cup is of interest right now. Congrats to all the, the Spain fans out there. And um, they built a collection that has all the players in the World Cup, and they took the, the real-time data of goals and everything down to player height and I think weight even. Yeah. And they Position. let you visualize all the players. And so things like who got the most yellow cards or who you know, fouled the most or who took the most shots, um, those are things that are actually kind of hard to dig up when you're looking at data today on the web. Mm. And you put it in a pivot control, and these insights become immediately obvious. Uh, there's not a, lot of, not a lot of guessing involved. And again, it's all uh, large views and graphs made up of pixels, you might say, that actually are the end result photograph. So you're always manipulating groups of photos. I just love that. Yeah, it it goes back to that continuous uh, continuous thought process, right? You you don't want to break the cycle from looking at a graph that shows you a trend to figuring out what the items are. Um, I've heard it described as blending the qualitative and the quantitative. Yeah, and that was um, that was actually from a group who took every ad that they were running across the web, and they made a uh, pivot viewer control that looks at them by things like impressions and cost per click, all kinds of different interesting metadata. And what they found was in the reviews where they were trying to decide, you know, here are some ads that are doing really well. The next question is, well, why are they doing really well? What do they have in common? 
And when you can see those items right next to each other in high resolution without waiting, and then jump back to the ones that aren't performing well, you can immediately start to see those qualitative traits of information uh, in a way that you just haven't been able to do before. I would like to see a, a website like Newegg or some place yeah. that sells computer hardware where you have you know the, the list of criteria on the left and you sort of narrow it down and narrow it down. That would be a really good, you know, any kind of retail site be great use for this. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think retail is one of the, the most interesting verticals that, that this can have an impact in. And one of the little-known features of Pivot Viewer, which I think will begin to be exposed more over time, is that there's actually some programmatic control over how the Pivot Viewer interacts with your website. So on each item, you can add up to three, three buttons that allow you to take an action. So, for instance, if you were doing retail, you could add a button for add to cart, buy now, or view more images, or view items like this, right? And then have that kick out code that your web page can interpret and actually interact with the whole site through the control itself. What about taking old data feeds into uh, the Pivot View? Yeah, we've looked at this one uh, quite a bit as well. So uh, there's a lot of goodness in, in OData, as I'm sure you guys uh, have seen also. Just the thought of how things like Dallas and OData can come together and really just make all this information accessible to developers yeah. is just exciting. And I think the, the biggest difference between those formats today and uh, like CXML and Pivot Viewer is that there's no representative image yet for a lot of that data not a requirement in that data set to have a, an image for everything. Right. So we can't just read it natively, otherwise we'd, we'd break that continuous experience. But I've heard of a couple different groups now um, starting to prototype with different translators. And, um, you know, frankly, we talk quite often with that team, and I think we have a shared vision that these, these big streams of data should be able to be visualized in ways just like Pivot. So I think down the road, I hope to have better and better answers for how those two things come together. You've um, used the word pivot and pivot viewer differently. I guess pivot is the project and pivot viewer is the client-side technology. Is that the difference? And there's two different websites. There's the pivot website at getpivot.com, and then there's the pivot viewer website, uh, which we've shrinksterized at 1EK6. Yeah, so there, there's a subtle difference to the two, right? Um, as a research lab... Live Labs wants to take this idea and continue to run with it and try all kinds of new scenarios that might not be ready for prime time yet, but hopefully show us some interesting uh, potential. And in Silverlight, we want to make sure that this control is ready for real customers. And so um, the project called Pivot was the original Live Labs project. Um, there's a downloadable WPF-based client application. Um, and Live Labs really thinks of that as the concept car, right? It's the place we prototype new interactions, try new things. Um, it doesn't, doesn't have dependencies on a lot of other things. It's really easy for us to try something, put it out there, and ask people what they think. And the Silverlight Pivot Viewer Control, which is, which is really named Pivot Viewer to align better with the different um, classes and, and nomenclature within the Silverlight Control community, I think I heard you guys talking about some of those other 
fewer controls uh, at the beginning of the program. And so it's just meant to fit naturally into the naming convention for Silverlight. Okay. And tell us about the collection tools, which is um, uh, another uh, portion of the website at um, getpivot.com or shrinkster.com slash 1EK9. So those are, uh, you know, the I'll put it this way. The Silverlight Pivot Viewer control is so new. I mean, we're within, you know, two weeks still of, of its release. A lot of the tools for building collections are still rooted in the initial research from live labs. And so there are a handful there that can be accessed. Um, I hope to see this list expand. I hope to see some different developers within the community actually build tools on their own that enable others to make great collections. Um, And I think you'll see the partnership between a lab and the product group continue to evolve over time. And so the things you can get on Live Lab's uh, website, getpivot.com, are what I would consider to be great prototypes that are highly useful today um, and hopefully will form uh, the basis for more product-looking tools down the road. And uh, there is a there is a lot of help online at the pivot uh, at getpivot.com for designing collections and the whole process about the design. And this is really about designing and defining uh, the metadata that allows you to access the data, not the data itself. You're not actually creating static collections, are you? Uh, in some cases, we are. Uh, you know, it's amazing how much value you can get from just a single static collection. Um, There are sets of data that we didn't particularly think would be interesting before we built them. And after you build them and show them to someone who's interested in that vertical, it becomes, you know, a great tool for them. One example was we did a collection of just yoga poses, right? That doesn't change too often. But um, just putting the data in a really clean format that allows you to visualize information in this way uh, is pretty useful. And what we find is the content owners themselves are often surprised by the results that they see. Um, You have companies who manage data who might think that they have perfect data for all of their stuff, but when you visualize it and pivot, they find that there's this whole section of things that have no information or are mistagged, and it just never popped out before the way they were storing it. Now, that doesn't mean we can't connect Pivot to a, a, a live database, does it? You can. Um, it's just, it goes back to that creativity thing, right? So what you essentially have to do um, to hook it up with something that's, that's more of a live implementation is I assume that the visuals themselves won't be changing. Usually there's a static visual for more dynamic data. And so the way to accomplish that is to use... Um, what we call a, a just-in-time collection or a, uh, or a dynamic collection. Okay. Um, and there's actually a reference design of that on the Live Labs tools page that you sent the link out to. Yep. Whereby you essentially create the CXML file at the time of the query, which means that it can be hitting um, as, you know, as real-time of a data source as you can build into that infrastructure. And the collection tool developer page is at shrinkster.com slash one echo kilo a alpha one EKA. So I kind of think the biggest stumbling block to somebody implementing this is having all those pictures. 
that yeah. it, you've got it's to find that. a data set or find some way to associate those data elements with some kind of image. You know, it's, it, we say it on the team quite often, but making really useful data collections like this is as much an art as it is a science. And the web just wasn't set up to be this high fidelity um, in, its, in its history, right? The, right. The, the thought that you would have thousands of images in high resolution and be mixing and matching those images with other high resolution images and trying to display them all on one web page at one time, uh, that's a fairly new problem to be solved. Yeah. Uh, and I think the real question that, that comes up when you look at your data is, you know, do a quick prototype and determine if this is the kind of thing that's going to revolutionize the experience on your page or if it might not be the best fit, right? There's definitely no claim here that this tool is perfect for everything. Um, in fact, we're surprised often at new uses that we didn't think it would be interesting for, but that particular audience found a great use. I think the one that's, that's coming to mind right now was someone forwarded me a a research example from a university where someone was studying, uh, you know, cancer in mice, and he made a collection of, of thousands of scans of, of different uh, anatomy pieces. And it was one of those things where it, it was beyond what I had considered, but uh, when viewed in that way, was a really useful tool for that researcher. And so I think it's, it's a flexible solution, and we'll, we'll see people either take on the cost and the burden of creating and finding those compelling visuals and where they do, I think we'll all be thankful for it. And I think we'll find other applications that simply uh, find a hard time making that one-to-one transition. Yeah. I could also see just making colored blocks and, and seeing the mosaic that that generates. Yep. Yep. I, uh, I've seen a few of those collections as well. I, I saw one, um, it was looking at server utilization, and each, each server within the company um, was represented by a different color block based on its, its you know, capacity and how full it was. And um, you could you know, sort by all different things and even like temperature and, and a bunch of other things. Um, I've also seen it used for bug tracking. Uh, within, yeah, that's software, within software development, something like bug tracking, looking at you know, the issues and basically color coding them, you know, green for resolved, red for severe, uh, and, and just having those color blocks with a little bit of text on them. There are all kinds of ways to make visuals to pair with pivot information. The key is it's always a design process. And if you apply some creativity, the result will always be better. Yeah, I mean, I could see just starting out literally with colored blocks that are colored related to some data element that's common across all of those elements. But then you probably start playing with that graphic over time just to see if you could do more with it to represent more information. I mean, even looking at the World Cup images, they're just headshots of football players. Right. Like th- that in itself is not a tremendous amount of data, but it's but it represents the end result of the of the query, which is I want to find a player. Yeah. There's not a lot of data in the picture. It's really a, a tool for manipulating the information in your mind. Well, they realize the you know the like the animation of them flying away is cute, but it also gives you a sense of how much data you've eliminated each time you click on a filter. Yeah. Very and good. the other thing to remember about building a collection is it's such an iterative process. Um, you don't like 
build one and test it, and it's right on the first try. Mm. Um, you build something, like you said, maybe you start with the headshots of the soccer players and all the data you can find, and you send it out to a bunch of your friends to look at, and people will say things like, hey, you know, this particular filter category wasn't interesting to me, like, um, you know, birthplace, because there were, there were so many different ones that it didn't create an interesting graph. And you'll have someone else suggest something like, oh, it would be really cool if you added the team logo to each card. And you'll have another person ask, hey, you should put on there a little graph that shows you know, how many goals they've scored over their career. And you can layer all that stuff on top of the image of the player. And you know, 10, 15, 20 mini iterations later, you'll wind up with a collection that actually has a lot more detail. And even that, that Hitch site that's been live for two weeks, I've seen them go through five iterations now where they started out with just one image of the wedding venue, and then they added the name of the wedding venue, and then they added an actual map that shows you where it is within the country. And then they went back and added you know, three or four more images to each item. And so it becomes this, this never-ending quest to keep loading more information in a way that's more useful. Cool. Well, guys, I think that's just about it, uh, unless you have anything else that you want to add before we sign off. Uh, the only thing I'd, I'd say is uh, I, I'm real excited to see what the listeners on this program will use this for and uh, come up with. Uh, we're, we're fans of this thing as much as we are our creators, and so... Um, if you ever see, see or come across any, any fun links, uh, please send them our way. We're always interested to see what people are doing. Excellent. Matt, Brad, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a